you know, the Black Lives Matter marches and, and other sort of protests that have taken place in the streets, you know, there's the street and the public space is a gathering place for the body politic and for people to come together in various forms of community and has been really pronounced this year in a way that I think you have to say, we're actually like really hungry for those kinds of public spaces that yeah. cities offer. Hey, today our guest is Alan Loomis, Principal of Urban Design at Placeworks, placeworks.com. Formerly the City Urban Designer for Santa Monica, California, and before that, the Principal Urban Designer for the City of Glendale. So he's got a lot of experience and is insanely well-spoken. He's got a website called Delirious LA that chronicles all things urbanism. It's great i mean it's got everything it's almost overwhelming it's got so much good stuff you got to check it out at deliriousla.com he wasn't also an adjunct professor at the woodbury school of architecture so he's not only been practicing but teaching it he's got a lot so in this episode we talk about how trade shapes our cities new perspectives on los angeles urbanism Alan's background and how he got to LA, the future of housing, especially in fire and coastal zones, and how the city itself is dealing with the pandemic. Fun, exciting, and a whirlwind of urbanism. Please enjoy. Alan, welcome to Human City. Well, thank you for having me, Stig. Cool. So um, what was your neighborhood like growing up? I grew up in southwest Michigan in a city called Portage, which is the largest of the suburbs that surround Kalamazoo in Kalamazoo County. Portage itself is a pretty typical American suburb. Uh, it doesn't have a downtown. It barely has any sort of history left. They took all the historic buildings in the city they gathered up and put together into like one spot in the middle of town next to like the library as a kind of like historic park Disneyland mm. sort of experience. Um, but they're, you know, that amounts to like five buildings in a barn. Yeah. <laughs> so Portage doesn't have much of a kind of history about it. Uh, the primary commercial street in downtown uh, is a eight lane long or eight lane wide, probably like four or five mile long commercial strip filled with a variety of malls and mini malls and shopping centers and whatnot, all of which is pretty typical, awful suburban stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so I grew up, you know, going to the Crossroads Mall, the typical indoor shopping mall. It was one of two that were in the city, and but it was the newer one, um, and had you know pretty much typical lifestyle. That looking back on it is sort of satirized by you know The Simpsons or you know Stranger Things if you yeah. watch Netflix these days. Um, a little bit, even though I was in Michigan, I had a bit of the uh, ET lifestyle as a kid, I was able to sort of ride my bike all over the place and explore the undeveloped tracts of land that were near our house and, you know, go bike, rode our 
dirt bikes around on the new roads that were being built and explored the houses that were being built. And I think just exploring houses that were under construction in my neighborhood probably sparked some measure of interest in being an architect and kind of pursuing that sort of a career. But interestingly, for my current life, uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, the, where the downtown, the proper downtown is, is actually pretty famous in urban planning circles because in 1959, Kalamazoo closed two blocks of Burdick Street, the primary shopping street in downtown, and converted it into the first downtown pedestrian mall, just the prototype for Third Street Promenade here in Southern California. Wow. And a whole Look variety of places. <laughs> so when I ended up after college living in downtown Kalamazoo and working there, um, I used to walk up and down the mall every day on my way to work. So I became really kind of familiar with just the experience of that mall. And Shortly before I left Kalamazoo to come out to California, they had a very torturous conversation about tearing out the mall and converting it back into a street, uh, which they did, except they only did two blocks of the four-block mall. They converted two blocks into a street, and they only did it as a one-way street. So they kind of like, they really couldn't commit to what they were doing. On and they, they sort of tried to split the baby in the bathwater, and I think they yeah. probably got the, the worst of both options. <laughs> Oh, damn. Why Why would they do that? What was the thought process? Just wondering. Well, I, Kalamazoo became really famous. It was known as the mall city because it was the first city to have done this kind of project in America. And you know, if you know your planning history, you know that the creation of downtown pedestrian malls was a response by downtowns as they were trying to compete with the suburban shopping malls that were being built in the late fifties and early sixties and into the seventies. And so there was this idea that somehow that was going to be the solution that you kind of duplicate the pedestrian experience of a shopping mall, but in a downtown and a lot of cities followed that model. And in most cities that hasn't turned out to be very well. I think the statistics on downtown pedestrian malls in America is something like 80% of the ones that were built have since been removed and replaced back with, just conventional streets and sidewalks. But in Kalamazoo, I think there was this emotional attachment to the mall as a kind of core part of the city's identity that they just couldn't let go of. And why they didn't do all four blocks and they just did two, I don't know. It, it just is really baffling to me, actually. <laughs> uh, so you talked about how you you got to explore and see your sort of Kalamazoo growing up. When did urban planning and design come into that picture? Like, was it later or? I, well, as a career path, yeah, it came later. And not until I moved out to California is a really distinct kind of career mm. path and interest. Uh, I started out thinking I was going to be an architect and ended up going to architecture school at the University of Detroit. Um, in the 19 early 90s when detroit was really at rock bottom the I mean, the city has since experienced something of a renaissance but in the early 90s it was really kind of at the bottom of its trajectory and at school there was this kind of idea that you know we just need to build more beautiful buildings and cathedrals and ballparks in the downtown and that would be the solution to the city's problems and i actually started reading joel garo's book edge city and my eyes were kind of open to the idea that there was actually more office space and more economic activity happening out in the suburbs that we never talked about at architecture school. And you were kind of 
almost dismissed as a heretic if you even wanted to talk about it at an architecture school to talk about the suburbs. And as a child of the suburbs, like I was pretty acutely aware that the suburbs were not the most ideal place to live. They had certain virtues, but they needed a lot of work. And I wanted to spend my time thinking about those kinds of places. So in Detroit, I started to become interested in urbanism as a pursuit and ultimately ended up coming to California, to Los Angeles to, for graduate school in architecture, um, in part because Los Angeles was this sort of aggressively polycentric city in which I thought the myth that you just have to build more beautiful monuments downtown will turn the city around like the city of Los Angeles would just sort of resist that very notion, which, you know, 20 something years on, I think is still actually true, notwithstanding the renaissance of downtown Los Angeles in the past decade or so. Um, So it was probably not until I actually got to L.A., and when I was in graduate study, like halfway through when I kind of went, like, I'm actually more interested in the city as a problem than architecture and buildings as a problem. Mm. Yeah. I see that with, um, I don't know, a lot of urban designers and planners I speak to, they, once they see this sort of bigger issue, um, they like, don't go back, you know, it's sort of like, whoa, this is where I need to spend time. Yeah, I mean, I was, at, you know, at some point in my architecture practice career, you know, as a young architect, kind of came to the realization that I was a lot more interested in how buildings related to one another than how two materials came together around the window. Yeah. And while I appreciate when somebody joins two different kinds of materials together around a window in a really elegant and beautiful fashion, and I, I get a lot of joy out of seeing that done well, I realized that I was not your stuff. Yeah, I wasn't interested in trying to solve <laughs> that problem. <laughs> yeah, <I> know. <laughs> one building to another and creating an environment for architects to do their best work was actually yeah. A place to me. And you know, totally. I, I have to say, and I've said this to other interviewers too, it's um, that you could actually trace my interest in city making all the way back to when I first started and becoming interested in architecture. Because when I was a young child, like maybe in like second grade or something my favorite tv show was the cartoon version of godzilla and i had a little plastic godzilla that i like to play with and you know if you're going to play with a plastic godzilla you know god what does godzilla do he smashes cities so i was starting to build little cities out of legos and you know, smash them <laughs> godzilla to smash and I think, you know, my parents or somebody said, oh, like, he looks like he's like, he likes to draw and he likes building, like making little houses. So maybe he should be an architect. And but maybe always all along, I wanted to be an urban planner. And in my subconscious, it's just so that I can build a really fantastic yeah. city for a radioactive lizard to crush. There you go. <laughs> There's something to it. We're little kids. We just want to do what we did when we were young, you know, <laughs> build cities. So, uh, you're now at Placeworks after being at Santa Monica for three years and Glendale before that for 12 years. Um, so you've done a lot. Um, how is Placeworks providing you more opportunity to make an impact in your work and your skill sets? Well, it's a re- very relevant question. It was one that Placeworks asked me when, um, when I kind of came on, why I'd be motivated to come there. And the answer is pretty simple. It's that I'm actually interested in having a really large impact in places uh, in, you know, California, 
the state and country, et cetera. And PlaceWorks, because our office is branches across the state of California, we're in like five different cities, uh, 100 plus people doing work all over the state. Uh, I felt like it was a really good venue for having a pretty broad impact in a lot of different places. And after 15 years in public government, where I spent lots and lots of time thinking about one particular place, you know, 12 years thinking about only Glendale and three years thinking about only Santa Monica, um, you know, part of the realization after that career was that I was going to have an impact only in those places. And Santa Monica in particular is, a, is an environment where lots of people spend lots of time thinking about one corner of the city. And, you know, you could think about different corners or kind of major projects in Santa Monica that take years and years to come from concept to even construction. And so I thought in Santa Monica, I'm going to have a very limited impact because I'm going to be one of many strong voices thinking about one particular corner of the city that will take five years to come to fruition. Whereas at PlaceWorks, I could be working on projects for a smaller community outside, you know, even outside of Los Angeles or outside of the bigger cities where it's been six months thinking about their downtown or their important corner of their city and have a very big impact on that place um, because they're just far less people maybe thinking about it or they just are in need of a kind of a higher level of thinking than their local government staff can provide because, you know, of course, a lot of these smaller communities, you know, the planning department, instead of being filled with, you know, 10 people have got practically PhDs in planning, which is what Santa Monica is, you know, the planning department and smaller communities is often, you know, three people, including the director. Um, Mm. And so PlaceWorks became a venue where I thought I could have a really big impact around the state in a lot of different places. Yeah. Uh, That was very, that was very appealing to me. And to think about a lot of other different kinds of places, I think Santa Monica and even Glendale are, you know, these rarefied kind of environments where they don't really represent, you know, the kind of typical planning and development urbanism problems that we face around the state. Um, Yeah. It was kind of a feeling like, yeah, Santa Monica is always going to be a pioneer in certain in certain aspects of planning but not exactly a prototype that can be copied and applied, you know, to the inland empire very easily. So, yeah, I, I totally get where you're coming from. Um, I probably feel the same way. (laughs) Uh, and I like how you put that, um, in terms of just like how much firepower and, um, I guess like collaboration now you have with such a, um, with PlaceWorks bringing so much smart people and experienced people, I'm sure just even that being exposed to those people and all your colleagues is probably exciting for you. Yeah. And there's, it's absolutely. And it's, there's a great range of people and talent sets and we're working all over the States, you know, from Northern California down to San Diego County. And yeah, so there's a lot of different experiences that come to bear and, you know, the team meetings. So, there's oftentimes if you're working in one particular community and you encounter a particular, you know, kind of problem, chances are somewhere in the company, somebody else has already addressed a similar issue or has a kind of prototype or a precedent for how you could think about that. So cool. Particular problem. 
cool. Um, just out of curiosity, what are you um, working on? Good question. Uh, so working on um, uh, objective design standards for City of Temecula, uh, and we're just getting started with City of Menifee to do the same. So this is in response to state uh, legislation to accelerate housing production, particularly multifamily housing. That mm. uh, communities have been are required now to apply objective design standards uh, when they approve projects. They're not allowed to use subjective design guidelines uh, in their approving process for multifamily. So lots of cities have been scrambling to try and adopt these objective design standards, which you know, essentially means the language should be shalls as opposed to should or recommend, um, mm. and so a lot of cities have been kind of trying to adopt these and we've been responding to a lot of proposals from different cities nice. uh, to help them think through this challenge. And essentially what it is, is we're developing a new kind of design guidelines that applies to single fam or sorry, multifamily housing only. Um, but it is a set of clear standards that uh, can be applied ministerially and doesn't need to go through some discretionary design review or planning commission process. It's a, kind of an over-the-counter approval for housing. So we're working with Semecula and Pondau, we're starting up with Menifee. We're just starting up with uh, City of Los Alamitos, just outside of Long Beach. Yeah. Uh, we're going to help them develop the strategic plan for their town center. Um, it's kind of a continuation of work. PlaceWorks has done with Los Alamitos uh, for many years. Uh, so those are... Exciting. You got, yeah, you're already five. rolling. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, responding to lots of different proposals for other, you know, corridor plans mm. for different places and smaller, other smaller downtowns. And, you know, all that stuff is really exciting because it's a pretty wide range of projects and work. Yeah, much more to come. Cool. Um, so I think I'm going to move on to some bigger um, questions of just like where we're at um, in general in city building, city planning, urban design. How have the impacts of national and global trade shaped our cities? That is a good question and one that I would often talk to my students when I was teaching uh, urban design theory about at the end of the semester, that one of the biggest impacts of global trade on cities has to do with the consolidation of the port operations and the movement of goods. So I think a lot of people tend to think of Los Angeles as being an entertainment capital and an entertainment industry town. But the reality is by sheer dollar figures, and this has probably changed in the past six months with the pandemic, but Los Angeles is really a port city that the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles combined are, you know, the third largest port in terms of tonnage in the world. Yeah. Um, and so Huge. the vast majority of things that we purchase in America that are made in Asia have passed through Los Angeles. Uh, one of those two ports, Easy. they get put on trains. They're rolled in container boxes out to the Inland Empire, to the big distribution centers around Ontario Airport, which is also predominantly about goods movement, um, and then shipped across the country. And you know, that has had the impact that there are very few ports in the world that actually matter. You know, they're, they're like maybe 10, right, um, that are at the scale that can handle these massive container ships. 
and the huge amounts of flat land that's required to move all those containers off those ships. And so you think about like the East River, or the Hudson River in New York City that were 50 years ago bustling port enterprises and they are no longer. And the number of places that used to be bustling ports that are no longer ports because they can't accommodate those massive ships. Huh. Uh, and the rail yards that used to be everywhere that have really consolidated into these very large complexes that are largely automated too. Hmm. Um, you know, it used to be you'd have tons of longshoremen to unpack a ship, and now one guy in a crane can unpack, you know, one of those container ships in a matter yeah. of days. It's true. Um, so that I think has had this huge impact on the way cities are made. It's made certain cities incredibly important from a goods movement perspective, like Los Angeles, those kinds of operations eat up a ton of land. Um, but they've also left behind, you know, these other smaller industrial sites and rail yards that are now oftentimes in prime locations in cities that are now being repurposed for recreation uses and you think of like the cornfield site uh in chinatown on the edge of downtown los angeles or the taylor Yards site on the la river you know yeah. those rail operations got moved out to the desert onto larger rail yards mm. that the city city center couldn't accommodate the amount of land the rail yards needed um, so now we've got these legacy industrial sites or you know even the high line has a similar yeah, kind of totally. legacy industrial thing that is artifact that doesn't need doesn't have a purpose after this transformation with the, the port system. So that's kind of the obvious one. The the one that's also really interesting is still kind of evolving. I think is related is similar, but it's around airports. So that there are certain airports that have become really important global hubs, and one of the reasons it turns out that a place like Dubai even exists is because Dubai is within, I think, like a four-hour flight of over half the world's population. So the premise of Dubai is that it's going to be this humongous business hub for half the world. Um, that's kind of why it's not a port city in this, mm. it's a seaport, but it's an airport city. And so the idea of airports as a kind of major hub is also kind of interesting. The airport hub cities, you know, will they, is that still going to be a viable like business yeah, model like, in the future as we come out of the pandemic and, hmm. you know, we'll see. Yeah. I like this take on it because, um, a lot of times I, I'll speak in cities as far as shaped by, you know, just someone setting up their coffee shop on the corner, but there's like these larger businesses and the economy of how goods are shipped around that create jobs. And then that needs infrastructure and places to live. And that's where these um, communities are set up, you know? So there's like these bigger forces or not bigger, but just more forces. <laughs> there's a lot of forces. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, and, and it makes a lot of sense too, because, you know, and, and arguably the reason, one of the primary reasons cities came into existence in the historical record in the first place is for the exchange of goods and commerce. In a way, you know, a city is a gigantic okay. for making money. And so it yeah. kind of makes sense that the cities that continue to thrive are the ones that are well positioned for this particular kind of global economy. But I, you know, I think the shipping container, yep. you know, kind of one of the most profound technological advancements in the kind of reshaping of cities in the past 50 years, you know, cause it's also left a lot of cities behind. 
unfortunately. A place like Kalamazoo is really, you know, continues to struggle. Yeah. Because it's not relevant in that global economy. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure we're not, we're no different. You know, things are changing. Who knows what the economy of the future will look like, but there will be economy somehow, I guess. (laughs) So whether it's based around the way we've moved goods around for the past 50 years remains like that's a big open question, whether the pandemic is going to have a significant, profound Mm -hmm. transformation of that. Yeah. Or whether it's going to be like the 1918 flu, it's going to be a three year blip and then we'll go back to business as normal. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I wonder what's happening. Um, I will get. I do want to talk about uh, COVID nineteen and the pandemic, but I have a few other questions. I think I want to get to quickly before that. I want to talk about housing, um, especially in California. You're doing a lot of work in California. Um, what do you think's the future of housing um, to ease affordability? You know, in the shortage crisis, what do you think? You know, I, a lot of people have opinions about that, and I take a lot of those opinions and prognostications with a certain amount of skepticism, because I think a lot of people are searching for a certain kind of like silver bullet, and I imagine that the real solution is a multi-pronged approach with a lot of different tools in the toolbox, and they will some of those tools will be more significant in certain communities and then in others. So like I said, you know, part of our work is developing efficient design standards and review process so that housing projects just get approved faster and they just are brought to the market faster. That's how, that's one thing. It's not the end all and be all solution. You know, there's also a problem of cost of construction and cost of land. You know, there's not much one can do about yep. the cost of land um, in California. It sort of is, totally. it is, it is. But cost of construction is one that you see the sort of prefabrication of housing components or construction components really trying to whittle away at, uh, where instead of having a bunch of guys cutting pieces of lumber and sticks and hammering them together and then covering them up with drywall and stucco as a means of construction that takes a lot of time and adds a lot of cost into the labor side that you prefabricate a bunch of panels or pieces or rooms in some factory in Nevada and you bring it out to the site and crane it into place and assemble the building in a matter of days rather than a matter of months. I think that's got some potential. Um, but ultimately, some of that is going to have to be adjusted through the kind of building code standards related to housing, that the building code standards just generate a certain square footage, a certain footprint, and a certain scale and size of, and cost associated with a housing unit that is a challenge if you're just trying to deliver stuff at scale. And some adjustment of the building code standards may be necessary as well. So I think I think it's probably a number of factors across the board. I do think, you know, one of the things I think is probably the most promising and people have been hammering on for years is the accessory dwelling units, the ADUs or the granny flat in your backyard of your single family house. Totally. Like that one, like that one, you're seeing real impacts now that lots of cities have legalized that, you know, partially because the state arm, you know, bent their arm into Out of that. State, yeah. Um, 
but like in Los Angeles and other communities, the number of permits being pulled for accessory dwelling units is amazing. So it's having a massive impact and, and one that's also important, I think, because it can operate at a smaller scale of investment. You know, as a yeah. single, as an owner of a single family house, you can imagine, you know, sort of leveraging the equity of your house to cover the construction cost of building an ADU that then you can finance long-term through whatever rental income you're going to pull out of that. So, yeah. Yeah. I uh, think, uh, yeah, that's been great for California and, um, just how like shortening the permit time too. So it's just more accessible for people to do that. Um, that's a big yeah. issue. Yeah, I and think. It's, it's interesting because I think there's a lot of comp- people who are entrepreneurially like setting up business models to help property owners, homeowners sort of build these sort of things. So they, it's almost like a turnkey. It's like, they said like hire us, we'll do all the permitting, we'll do all this sort of stuff. You know, we'll just take a cut of your rental income for a certain amount of time to cover our costs of putting this up for you. You know, they'll even do the financing. So it's almost like, you know, the same model that people are, using to put solar panels on, on people's mm. roofs now. Yeah. I mean, just it's catalyzing more economy with that. It's yeah. I mean, that's exciting that, you know, just changing the laws like that created all this opportunity for people. Um, yeah, that, that's. Yeah. So I, I think one of the, one of the next level of initiative on that is about smaller scale multifamily housing. You know, it's yeah. right now we have, and the cities, the big cities anyways, the kind of multifamily housing that's being built has, you know, three levels of underground parking and one level of commercial real estate. You know, this is a big concrete structure with four levels of stick frame above it. You know, that is a big expensive project that only big developers can do. And it generates a living environment that's, you know, kind of a large scale apartment environment. And for California, where we've got this great weather, it sort of like doesn't capitalize on the ability to live indoors and outdoors very well. So <laughs> you know, the latest range of initiatives is around the missing, what people call the missing middle of housing. It's, you know, density that's at a scale where you don't have to build underground parking. And yeah. it's also open to a kind of smaller level of investment and a different kind of builder and can be delivered constructed a lot faster than these kind of large scale mixed use projects take years to get to be built. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that, um, Chris Hawthorne, the, uh, design officer, um, he just came out with a contest on low rise, um, like, you know, uh, multifamily. So like max six units. Yeah. Um, He's having a contest to my friend Christopher for doing that. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So low rise missing middle. Yeah. Um, super important. And a lot of, uh, like accessibility. I spoke to another person. You've probably heard of him. His name's John Anderson. Um, he started what's called the incremental development Alliance and he is like a huge, he's always advocating for like getting community members involved in building these small scale, like buildings that all these cities need, you know? So, um, yeah, it's important. And I think it'll open the door for more, like you said, more people than just the big developers who can sit and wait for these big, big buildings. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the other important part of it is about the sort of the creation of value and wealth for kind of wider range of people. Like those large developments are financed by big banks and investment companies, et cetera. You know, it's not the kind of thing that 
you know, a doctor or a Good dentist point. or a lawyer can sort of put together, pull together the financing to do a project, which is how, you know, the early courtyard developments of Los Angeles or even the Dingbat projects of the 50s and 60s, that's how those things were built. So, is that right? Huh. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of smaller scale developers or kind of mm. professionals that were the investors behind those kinds of projects. So, you know, it's, I think it's important for supporting kind of local economies of local businesses and local wealth generation, you know, because a big apartment complex gets built by a national REIT, like, and everybody pays their rent, like, where does that money go? Yeah. Ultimately, it goes to some other city where it gets invested in another location as opposed mm. to invested back in a local community. You know, it's, wow. a, it's a the real estate argument for shopping at your local bookstore instead of shopping at Amazon, I suppose. Yeah. Huh. It's a good way to put it. Never heard that. Cool. Uh, so what do you think, just a couple more and we'll wrap up, but what do you think about fire and coastal zones? I think that's going to be a real interesting problem for cities to grapple with and communities over the next 25 years and probably in the immediate 10 to 15 year future, because I think it's pretty clear, especially in California and the communities have been impacted by fire that living so close to wildfire zones or wilderness areas is really problematic. Like we've just seen over and over again, that that is a dangerous place to live. It's obviously a super desirable place to live. And even if people's homes have been burned down, they're not going to be inclined to sort of walk away from that investment and their, that place and their home. Like there's this kind of emotion, there's yeah. obviously an emotional yeah. attachment to it you know, a run in conflict of saying like, we're not going to rebuild in those places. Those people have to find some other place to live and call home. Like that is kind of in conflict with this desire of the state to generate lots of housing. When you say like housing that was recently there, we're not going to allow you to rebuild. Right. So it's kind of competing public policy interests. Yep. But I I think that's going to be a challenge that a lot of communities are going to have to grapple with as to what, what extent do they allow neighborhoods to rebuild in either fire zones or in kind of flood zones or up against the seashore where erosion is kind of taking away the beaches. And I suspect that public governments are not going to be the tools to sort of take away that ability, at least in the reconstruction. I think it's going to be insurance companies. I think insurance companies are going to get to a point where they're just not going to, they, they will be unwilling to shoulder the amount of risk of insuring your house when you've been almost burned down twice and burned down once, mm-hmm. you know, they may basically say like, we're not going to give you insurance on this house. And at that point people will be, you know, yeah. upside down and stranded and will have to walk away. Good so point. to me, I think insurance companies is like, you know, with the hard nosed business logic of insurance companies or actuaries is probably going to be what's going to start the trickle of retreat from those kind of frontline communities. But, you Money. Know, that, being, <laughs> you know, that being said, like new communities that are going into those kinds of locations are definitely being hit with more stringent laws and regulations and setbacks than they had been in the past. Like it's definitely at yeah. the forefront of planning new communities, you know, it just means a large track of land with, you know, up against some a potential wildfire area, the amount of land that you could develop today is going to be less than it was five years ago because of those kinds of laws. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, um, 
like we see like people building in the floodplain in Houston and, and they live there and they basically don't like there's families that their house floods every year, you know? Yeah. I just, yeah. There are certain places in the country that I, you know, like the coastal Louisiana, I'm just surprised anybody is building and investing there. It just, you know, or yeah. even like my, a place like Miami, I, I yeah. would not bet on real estate in Miami. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make sense, but like yeah. you brought it up, there's some tie, like some family tie that people, you know, it's home. So it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I, you know, my family and friends from the Midwest, you know, are baffled as to why we live in California and put up with earthquakes. That's a good point. You know, yeah. but it's not, it's not a coastal and kind of California problem either. I mean, think about the huge flooding that's occurred in the Midwest Yeah, on yeah. a regular basis as the Mississippi the and other rivers have, you know, flooded. Um, it's going to be a challenge across the country. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's definitely of critical concern. Yeah, cool. I, I think in the I think in the end it it's going to amount to communities are going to start to get more compact because of that. They'll just be less huh. able to yeah, spread they out, and we yeah. will, it will be yet another factor in kind of encouraging cities to become more compact and more hmm. localized. Cool. That's exciting. <laughs> more, yeah, denser, nice, <laughs> denser, more pedestrian-oriented footprints because there just won't be the room to go out to uh, the edge. Okay. Be- yeah. Huh. Never thought about it like that either. Okay. Last question: Will urban centers thrive post-COVID? Yeah, I am one of those people that is totally gung ho on cities, and you know, believe that. Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, it's. You know, the cities have endured multiple over the centuries that since we invented cities have been, have suffered pandemics and diseases over and over and over and over again. And cities always come back. Eventually they always, you know, they always come back stronger. You know, we are a more urbanized society than we were during the 1918 flu and we were during the bubonic plague, you know, so like we will, cities will return, uh, post COVID, um, you know, I think the next three or four years for cities might be very challenging. Um, as we sort of sort all that out and, and whether there's a, the vaccines that are being announced or that those are viable and how long, uh, how quickly they can be distributed. Now the pace they're talking about, like if we're all vaccinated by the end of next year, you know, cities may, may all come back just the way we were. There'll just be a lot less restaurants and services yeah. around and small businesses than we remember when we left yeah. the city, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, in some ways that'll open up new opportunities to think about like how superheated the market in San Francisco was. And now that people have left, like there might be a correction in San Francisco real estate that allows less well-financed entrepreneurs to come in and take over spaces and, yeah, you know, start the cycle over again. So I, th- I think cities will definitely thrive post COVID. In fact, the one piece about the cities and during the COVID era that I think is actually super encouraging and, and like a place of immense optimism is that after we were all told to shelter in place and stay home and not go out anymore, you saw how people like flock to the beaches and parks and yeah. you know, the mountain trails. Like we just became super hungry for being able to go out into public. In public spaces and that led to 
you know, the claiming of street space for pedestrians and, you know, in many cases, diners and restaurants. But even, you know, in the high point of the heat wave and the fires that were going on in California, you'd go out and you'd see people sitting outside having all fresco dining. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. They're either really don't want to do dishes at the end of the day, or they're really desirous of being out in public. And then with the, you know, the Black Lives Matter marches and, and other sort of protests that have taken place in the streets, you know, there's the street and the public space is a gathering place for the body politic and for people to come together in various forms of community and um, has been really pronounced this year in a way that I think you have to say, we're actually like really hungry for those kinds of public spaces that yeah. cities offer. And it will be very, very challenging to figure out who has the right to be in those spaces and how they're going to be paid for and who has the right to uh, make decisions about those kinds of spaces and who are they for. But at the core of it, there's actually like a place for an immense optimism that public spaces and cities matter a lot. And the past six months have demonstrated how much they matter to us in a way that maybe we had forgotten yeah. about 12 months ago. So yeah. I, I think that's, you know, you look at all that and you say, you've got to be pretty optimistic about the future of cities. Yeah, that was a, yeah, I think you brought up all good points there. Um, yeah, it seems more like it's morphing the city, you know, it's just changing it. Even suburbia, um, I'm not sure. I don't think it's like killing urban centers, but like you said, all those factors sort of are contributing to something different, but still yeah, and, still and you know, the, the suburbs and the sort of former bedroom communities of the big cities are actually getting this kind of new breath of life because people are working from home and they may be for a long time or they may ultimately be able to work from home four days, three days out of the week and stay home. So the disposable money that somebody from, you know, city of Ontario was spending to go into downtown Los Angeles for a job, now they can keep in Ontario during the week. And so the smaller you know, those kind of suburban communities are starting to think like there's an opportunity for a real urban renaissance. Yeah. And they're, you know, on a smaller scale, but you know, people still want that kind of public environment and kind of, you know, the buzz of being in a city and going out to eat and having yeah. a place to go. And so the smaller places that maybe like everybody left during the day and didn't come back till very late in the evening, like they now have an opportunity to find their own proper scale of city making. Yeah. So that's, you know, so cool. The money is moving around different places. Cool. This has been super fun, Alan. Like really, uh, I learned a lot. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Like, really yeah. Thank it. you. Thank you for the conversation. It's great. And yeah. Appreciate the. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. Just one, where can people see or get in contact or see your work if they're interested? Sure. Placeworks is placeworks.com and you can see uh, all the staff that, across the state and the work we've been doing across the state there. My personal portfolio is at deliriousla.com and deliriousla is also my Instagram handle. And on Twitter, I'm at Alan Loomis. Perfect. Cool. Yeah. And I'll link to everything. Thank you. Thank you again, Alan. Yeah. Thank fun. you, Stick. Hey guys, that is all. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, just send to humancitypodcast at gmail.com or you could hit me up at Twitter at humancitypod 
or even Instagram at human.city. I love listening. I love hearing it. Please, guys, absolutely anything. I'd love to talk. And that is it. I'm Stig. Goodbye, goodbye. Oh, oh, oh.